You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We have many national months dedicated to different causes and concerns, from Black history to music in our schools, to Jewish American heritage, to correct posture. As of the time of this recording, we're in the final week of National Hispanic Heritage Month because it runs from September 15th to October 15th. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Before we get into today's discussion on National Hispanic Heritage Month, it's worth noting that I am not of Hispanic or Latino heritage. I am, in fact, fluorescently white. But I do promise to do my best to accurately represent all of the topics in today's show. That being said, I invite comments and corrections. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first thing we need to clear up is some confusion on nomenclature, specifically the terms Latino and Hispanic. Let's dispense with the word Spanish. A Spanish person is a person from the country of Spain. Hispanic refers to people of Spanish-speaking descent in a wider geography. Latino refers to people of Latin American descent. There are also terms specific to one country, such as Chicano for someone from Mexico, or those referring to specific ancestry, such as Boracua for the native people of Puerto Rico. While there are many people who are both Hispanic and Latino, the terms are not interchangeable. For example, a Brazilian person is Latino, but not Hispanic. Brazil is in Latin America, but it is a Portuguese-speaking country. There is also the emerging term Latinx, and it has some starch attached to it. Latinx is a gender-inclusive term, as opposed to Latino for males and Latina for females. Like many languages, Spanish is gendered, meaning nouns are either male or female. If I were talking to three lady friends, we are amigas. But if a guy friend comes over, the whole group becomes amigos. Latinx was created more than a decade ago to erase the gender bias of the term Latino. By dropping the traditional O or A endings at the end of the word, Latinx not only includes both genders, but those who identify outside the gender binary, such as transgenders and gender fluid. But there are those who counter that it's an unnecessary effort to forcibly change the language of millions of people. As with many things, If you're not certain which term a person prefers, politely ask. Speaking of nomenclature, why are the countries of Latin America called Latin America when they don't speak Latin? Where did that name come from at all? 
Contrary to the answer I once came up with for myself, it has nothing to do with the region being settled by Catholics. Latin refers to the language of Latin, and Latin America is made up of countries whose language developed from Latin. It was actually French Emperor Napoleon III who established the name. These equatorial and southern hemisphere New World countries had been known as Hispanic America, meaning originating with Spain. During the Mexican Civil War, Napoleon III wanted to make the Austrian Archduke Maximilian Emperor of Mexico. He referred to the region as Latin America, saying that, via their language, France was closer to Mexico than Mexico was to Britain or the United States, which both speak a Germanic language. The hope was that France would be allowed to claim paternity or at least some influence in the region. Needless to say, it did not work. Why does Hispanic Heritage Month run from the middle of one month to the middle of the next rather than from the first day to the last day? Each year, Americans observe National Hispanic Heritage Month from September 15th to October 15th, celebrating the histories, cultures, and contributions of citizens whose ancestors come from Spain, Mexico, the Caribbean, Central, and South America. The observation started in 1968 as Hispanic Heritage Week under President Lyndon Johnson, whose presidential proclamation 3869 stated in part, wishing to pay special tribute to the Hispanic tradition and having in mind the fact that our five Central American neighbors celebrate their Independence Day on the 15th of September and the Republic of Mexico on the 16th, the Congress by House Joint Resolution 1299 has requested the President to issue annually a proclamation designating the week including September 15th and 16th as National Hispanic Heritage Week. Not to get off topic so early, if you want to hear something else memorable that Johnson said, Google his phone call to the Hager Slacks Company. Please note, this particular slice of Americana is not safe for work or children, but it is totally worth it. In 1988, President Ronald Reagan wrote the current period from September 15th to October 15th into law. September 15th is significant because it's the anniversary of independence for Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua in 1821. Mexico and Chile celebrate their independence on September 16th and 18th, respectively. How do you properly elucidate the history of 18% of the world's population in a half-hour podcast? You can't, but I'll do my best with a smattering of illustrious names and fascinating stories. We'll start at the top, as it were, with the highest court in the land, with its first Hispanic justice. And that's no mean feat when you consider that of the 113 justices we've had, 107 have been white men. Sonia Sotomayor, the Bronx-born daughter of native Puerto Ricans, is only the third woman to serve on the Supreme Court. Her father passed away when Sonia was still in grade school, and her mother worked six days a week as a nurse to provide for her children and ensure that her children could attend private school. Sotomayor decided to become an attorney at the age of 10 after watching an episode of the legal drama Perry Mason. With this goal in mind, she studied diligently while attending Cardinal Spellman High School and graduated valedictorian of her class in 1972. 
She was awarded a scholarship to Princeton University, where she was active in student groups, particularly the Puerto Rican activist group Acción Puerto Riqueña. In 1976, Sotomayor graduated summa cum laude with her bachelor's degree in history, gaining election to Phi Beta Kappa before moving on to Yale Law School. Upon graduating Yale in 1979, the 25-year-old Sotomayor became an assistant district attorney, quickly establishing herself as an imposing and steadfast prosecutor. She helped put some of the decade's most heinous criminals behind bars and triumphed in high-profile cases including the famous Tarzan murder case and a major child pornography bust. As judge for the Southern District of New York, she gained fame as the judge who saved Major League Baseball with her strike-ending decision in Silverman versus Major League Baseball Player Relations Committee. In another widely read decision, her majority opinion in Castle Rock Entertainment v. Carroll Publishing Group finding a copyright infringement on material from the television show Seinfeld became standard for applying the fair use doctrine. This decision is highly relevant for podcasters, YouTubers, and any other such content creators who might want to use clips of other people's work in their projects. President Clinton nominated Sotomayor to the United States Court of Appeals for the 2nd District in 1997, where she would hear more than 3,000 cases and write over 380 majority decisions. Justice David Soter's sudden retirement in 2009 opened the seat into which President Obama would nominate Sotomayor in May of that year, and the Senate confirmed her in August. Hispanics celebrated her appointment to the Supreme Court as a first, and the working class of the Bronx hailed the success of one of their own. Jumping right into the thick of the job, Sotomayor began firing off questions during oral arguments, rather than taking the typical settling-in period. The first case she heard was Citizens United v. the Federal Elections Commission, where she dissented from the majority opinion in favor of rights of corporations in campaign finance. Sotomayor has specifically fought for the protection of affirmative action programs, and ruled in the majority which upheld the Affordable Care Act twice and legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. While she is cutthroat toward ill-prepared attorneys, she is known for her kindness toward jurors and toward attorneys that she sees working hard to advocate for their clients. Sonia Sotomayor's story is in great contrast to that of many women on the island of Puerto Rico in the 1950s. who found themselves unwitting lab rats for the benefit of women in mainland America. Although the birth control pill allows women to feel more in control of their bodies, many don't realize the dark history behind its creation. In 1956, researcher Gregory Pincus and gynecologist John Rock conducted the first experiment to test the effectiveness of hormonal birth control. Pincus had to perform the experiments in Puerto Rico to avoid legal conflicts in the United States, since birth control and even information about it were widely illegal until the 1960s. The experimenters had nearly 1,500 women try the birth control pill. Many of the women were poor and illiterate, which made a free drug that allowed them to plan their next pregnancy irresistible. None of the women were told about the potential side effects. They weren't even told that the drug was experimental, 
only that they wouldn't get pregnant as long as they took their pill every day. On August 2, 1959, Pincus wrote an article in the Washington Post detailing his observations of the experiment. He noted that 25% of women had quit taking the pill because of side effects, such as a lack of interest and desirability, nausea, and dizziness. Other side effects included weight gain, vomiting, headaches, stomach pain, severe cramping, constant mood changes, and depression. The researchers were far less concerned with the subject's condition than they were with proving the pill's efficacy. In August of 1962, the FDA was notified that 26 of the women in the study had developed blood clots. Three women in the study had died, though no autopsies were performed. Why was Puerto Rico chosen to be the site for this trial? In the early 1950s, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, became aware of Pincus' creation of the pill to prevent unwanted pregnancies. Sanger was a promoter of contraception, so it's not surprising that she wanted to see the pill tested in the real world. Planned Parenthood's official stance on why Puerto Rico was chosen as the test site is that Puerto Rico did not outlaw contraception, they were geographically close to the United States, and that researchers were testing to see if even illiterate women would be able to manage their own hormonal contraception. Critics maintain that Puerto Rico was chosen for a lack of oversight and that poor, desperate women were targeted in particular. Life being what it is, that wasn't the only suffering visited on the women and other residents of this U.S. territory. Half a million homes were destroyed by Hurricane Maria one year ago. The death toll may never be known with certainty, but it's at least 2,900. Even now, there are communities still relying on generators for electricity and homes that only have blue tarps for roofs. Many roads are still impassable. Our fellow citizens need our help to this day. If you visit the bit.ly link bit.ly slash prcharities, it'll take you to the website Charity Navigator, which assesses charities based on important criteria like how much of the donation gets eaten up by administrative costs. The page lists several three- and four-star charities helping Puerto Rico and the surrounding region. Even though it feels like the mid-Atlantic where I live is a magnet for hurricanes, we rarely have to go more than a few days at worst without electricity, and I don't remember a time where I've actually been without access to water or communication. Realizing how fortunate we are, I challenge my gentle listener to visit bit.ly slash PR Charities, select a charity, and donate one hour's wage. Speaking of segues, which I'm doing now, let's get into a little folklore. One of the best-known tales is that of La Llorona. Hers is not a happy story. They say that La Llorona was once a poor young woman who fell in love with a rich nobleman, and together they had three children. The girl wished to marry the nobleman, but he refused her because she had borne three children out of wedlock, which he considered a disgrace. His children, in case you lost track. Mad with grief at this rejection, the girl was determined to have the nobleman for her own, so she drowned her children to prove her love for him. But he still would have none of her and married someone else. 
The girl walked along the river, weeping and calling for her children. But they were gone, so she drowned herself. For her crimes, her spirit was condemned to wander the waterways, weeping and searching for her children until the end of time. It's said that whenever the wailing woman appears, someone will die. La Llorona is even blamed for a fatal car crash in the 1990s, where it is said that she appeared next to the tree that the car ultimately hit. La Llorona is also identified with La Malinche, the Nahua woman who served as Cortes's interpreter and bore him children, whom some say was betrayed by the Spanish conquistadors. In one folk story, she became Hernán Cortés's mistress and bore him a child, only to be abandoned so he could marry a Spanish lady. There's no evidence that she killed her child, but there really isn't anything that says what happened to her child or children one way or the other. The most famous cryptid, that is, fantastical creature, of Latin America is undoubtedly El Chupacabra, the goat sucker. Descriptions vary, but generally they are said to be a bipedal creature, four to five feet tall, with spikes down its back, long thin arms and legs, and an alien-like oblong head with red or black eyes. They have long vampire-like fangs and are said to suck the blood of livestock in the night, hence the name the goat sucker. The legend of El Chupacabra isn't ancient, though. Benjamin Radford, author of several books on monsters and paranormal phenomenon, dug through every Chupacabra mention and traced the physical description of the monster to a single event in the second week of August 1995, when a sketch from an eyewitness ran in a Puerto Rican newspaper. Locals immediately tagged the alien-looking creature El Chupacabra. The creature, Radford noticed, shared a strong resemblance to the alien-human hybrid in the 1995 sci-fi thriller Species. When he spoke to the witness, he asked her if the things she saw could have been inspired by the film. Indeed, she had seen that movie in the weeks prior to making her description. There have been cases of supposed four-legged chupacabras in Texas and New Mexico, but these invariably turn out to be coyotes or raccoons with mange. Have you ever noticed that since we all started carrying high-res cameras all the time, there haven't been any new blurry photos of cryptids? No more backlit shots of Nessie or shaky footage of Bigfoot? Funny how that happened. You'd think it would be all over social media. Speaking of social media, in the name of better branding, I've changed the handle of our Twitter account. It's now BrainOnFactsPod. If you've previously clicked follow on the Moxie LaBouche profile, you're already set and you'll still see the posts. If you're not into tweeting, there's also our Facebook or Instagram, both of which are at slash yourbrainonfacts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. A Mexican-American soldier was killed in action in the Philippines in the last days of World War II. No one could have known then that his burial would push forward the fight against anti-Hispanic discrimination. In 1948, the remains of Private Felix Longoria were shipped home to Three Rivers, Texas, where the Mexican section of the cemetery was segregated with barbed wire. The director of the funeral home would not allow the Longoria family to use the chapel because the whites would not like it. Longoria's widow and her sister took this to Dr. Hector Garcia, the founder of the American GI Forum, a congressionally chartered Hispanic veterans and civil rights organization. He, in turn, contacted the funeral director, but received the same refusal. Garcia sent numerous telegrams and letters to Texas congressmen. Senator Lyndon Johnson responded immediately with support and an offer to arrange for a burial in Arlington National Cemetery. The funeral took place on February 16, 1949. Senator Johnson and a personal representative of President Truman were in attendance. After the funeral, the Texas House of Representatives ordered a committee to investigate the Felix Longoria incident. The committee held open hearings at the Three Rivers Chamber of Commerce and concluded that there was no discrimination on the part of the funeral director and that he had acted in anger but had apologized. Though one committee member stated that the funeral director's words appear to be discriminatory, and another member withdrew his name from the majority report and filed his own account, which stated that the actions of the director were, quote, on the fine line of discrimination. The report was never filed. The Felix Longoria incident would provide Mexican-Americans with an example to unify and expand their struggle for civil rights in the coming decades. A topic I wanted to cover in the recent Banned Books episodes was that of the controversy surrounding Arizona School's Mexican-American Studies program, or rather, the controversy around it being removed and the books it used being banned from the schools. The Mexican-American Studies program started in 1998 partly in response to claims by Black and Latino parents that the district's makeup promoted intentional segregation and unconstitutional discrimination on the basis of race and national origin. The program aimed to narrow the academic gaps between Latino students and their peers through Mexican-American authors and other writers of color. The program was meant to build confidence in students who weren't engaged by a traditional curriculum. 
ethnic study courses, which first arose at universities during the civil rights movement, have expanded into high schools in recent years. A 2012 study by University of Arizona professor Nolan Cabrera found that students who participate in the program's courses perform better on state tests and graduate at higher rates. The crusade against the Mexican-American Studies program began in 2006 when labor rights activist Dolores Huerta gave a speech to students at Tucson High Magnet School, calling on students to look at the immigration legislation arising at the time and address why, quote, Republicans hate Latinos. The comment stuck with Thomas Thorne, then Superintendent of Public Instruction for Arizona's Department of Education. When students weren't allowed to ask questions at a meeting with Horn's deputy, some raised their fists and turned their backs in protest. In an open letter to Tucson residents, Horn blamed teachers for the students' actions and criticized the Mexican-American Studies program for teaching students, quote, a kind of destructive ethnic chauvinism. In 2010, the same year Arizona lawmakers passed the infamous anti-immigration law SB 1070, a Republican-controlled legislature passed HB 2281. Specifically, the bill set out to ban courses that, quote, promote the overthrow of the United States government, promote resentment toward a race or class of people, are primarily designed for pupils of a particular ethnic group, or advocate ethnic solidarity instead of the treatment of pupils as individuals. Only one program in one school district qualified to be shut down, the Mexican-American Studies program. That October, a group of teachers sued the state, alleging that the elimination of the program violated their First Amendment rights. In July 2011, on Horn's last day as state superintendent, right before he became state attorney general, he announced that the Tucson program violated state law and ordered that the district terminate the program or face losing 10% of their state funding. John Hoopenthal, a state senator who helped pass the law, succeeded Horn. Despite an independent audit that found no observable evidence that the program violated Arizona law, Hoopenthal rejected the findings of that and a second investigation, threatening to withhold state funding from Tucson School District for failing to end the program. In January 2012, in the wake of these sanctions, the school board voted to end the program and physically confiscated the books from the schools. In 2013, District Judge A. Wallace Tashima upheld most of the 2010 law, arguing that the students involved failed to show that it was passed with discriminatory intent. Two years later, a federal appeals court in San Francisco disagreed and ordered the case back to trial concluding there was enough evidence to determine otherwise. Hoppenthal denied his actions in enacting the law were made with discriminatory intent. That might be more believable if he wasn't shown to have also made inflammatory remarks on different websites before and during his time as state superintendent, for which he refused to apologize. Under different pseudonyms, Hoppenthal lambasted the program's teachers, likening them to the KKK, and saying the classes, quote, use the exact same technique that Hitler used in his rise to power, according to court documents. Unlike the Felix Longoria incident, this situation saw changes implemented more immediately. 
In August 2017, a federal judge declared that the 2010 ban of the school district's Mexican-American studies program was unconstitutional and enacted with discriminatory intent. In a 42-page ruling, U.S. District Judge A. Wallace Tashima, the same one who originally upheld the ban, found that the state's actions, quote, were motivated by a desire to advance a political agenda by capitalizing on race-based fears. As far as my research indicates, the program has not been reinstated, but teachers have been allowed to integrate the previously banned books into the main curriculum. If I have any gentle listeners in Arizona, please let me know the status there. I'm always open to updates, and especially to corrections. National Hispanic Heritage Month ends two weeks before Halloween, which makes it an ideal time to point out that, while Halloween and Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, do share common roots, they are totally different holidays. One major distinction is that Halloween is only one night, whereas the Day of the Dead is actually a three-day event that is just getting started on October 31st. The Spanish learned of the traditional rituals when they arrived in Central America in the 16th century. They believed the practice, started by the Aztecs some 3,000 years ago, was sacrilegious. But the festival couldn't be quashed. Originally celebrated in the summer, it was moved to November 1st and 2nd to coincide with the Catholic All Saints Day and All Souls Day. Not only did it survive, it thrived moving from southern Mexico and spreading north. It also merged with other elements of Christianity. Many of the elements that make up Dia de los Muertos, including gravesite vigils and special treats, are not unique to Mexico. But Mexico stands out for its rich and joyful celebration. Halloween has largely been stripped of its connection to the afterlife. The aspects of the holiday that do touch on death such as ghosts, ghouls, and other spirits in costumes and decorations, tend to focus on our fear of mortality and the spookiness of the unknown. The Day of the Dead, on the other hand, focuses squarely on death. But rather than treating it as something dark and frightening, it is about laughing in the face of death, as represented by the ubiquitous smiling skulls and skeletons, known as calaveras and catrinas, which are often depicted dancing or playing music. Dio de los Muertos is about remembering lost loved ones, to celebrate their memories rather than mourning their loss. It is believed that Dio de los Muertos is when the spirits of dead ancestors return to the world of the living to visit. The Day of the Dead is a day of connection, remembrance, and love for and with those who have died, the ancestors says Kristen Norgit, author of Days of Death, Days of Life, Ritual in Popular Culture in Oaxaca. Halloween is completely lacking this important dimension. From October 31st to November 2nd, people across Mexico clean their relatives' graves and decorate them with bright flowers, typically marigolds, candles, and things the deceased person loved in life. Common offerings are food, coffee, alcohol, and tobacco. The families stay overnight in the cemetery and hold a vigil at their loved one's grave. There is a wide variation in the way Dia de los Muertos is celebrated across Mexico, and the holiday is constantly evolving. For example, 
Halloween costumes are becoming more common in parts of Mexico on the 31st, and large parades have become part of the holiday, especially in Mexico City. It is also common, especially for people unable to make an overnight gravesite visit, to build an elaborately decorated altar in their home, known as ofrendas, which incorporates reminders of the dead person, including photographs and things the person loved. The ofrenda is often the most recognized symbol of Dia de los Muertos. This temporary altar is a way for families to honor their loved ones and provide them with what they need on their journey. An ofrenda should include the four elements, water, wind, earth, and fire. Water is left in a pitcher so the spirits can quench their thirst. Papel picado, or traditional paper banners, represent the wind. Earth is represented by food, especially bread. Candles are often left in the form of a cross to represent the cardinal directions so the spirits can find their way. The sempasulchi, a type of marigold native to Mexico, is often placed on ofrendas and around graves. With their strong scent and vibrant color, the petals are used to make a path that leads the spirits from the cemetery to the family's home. Monarch butterflies play a role in Dio de los Muertos because they are believed to hold the spirits of the departed. This belief stems from the fact that the first monarchs arrive in Mexico for the winter around November 1st. Calaveritas de azucar, or sugar skulls, along with toys, are left on the altars for children who have passed. The skull is not used as a morbid symbol, but rather a whimsical reminder of the cyclicality of life, which is why they're brightly decorated. Decorated breads, paper cutouts, and plastic toys, most of them playing humorously on the death theme, are evident everywhere, says an article for the American Folklore Society. Sculpted sugar candies in the form of skulls, skeletons, and caskets suggest an almost irreverent, macabre confrontation with mortality. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. In addition to my request for help for Puerto Rico, bit.ly slash PR Charities, I beg you for one other thing. Unless you grew up leaving flowers on the ofrenda, please do not paint your face like a sugar skull this Halloween. I don't care how many times you watched Coco. Cultures are not costumes. Personally, I'm doing Halloween dressed as Mary Berry from the Great British Bake Off. That way I can adorably, passive-aggressively critique everyone else's costume. It's not a brilliant sewing job, is it? But I can see you're having fun. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word waggle. Waggle. And thanks to our superfan Vera Wild for the word suggestion. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app.
and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.